Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If you want to get an honest read on the economy, forget the government data from the Commerce Department or even the Federal Reserve. Instead, you need to look at the transports, especially the rails. All aboard! On a blah day, where the Dow ultimately dipped three points, S&P backslid 0.23%, NASDAQ climbed 0.05%, you got an incredible snapshot of the economy from CSX, the best railroad around with a stock that caught fire today. Let me put it this way, so you know how I recognize that our economy was slower in the fourth quarter. I looked at this stuff. That's right. Just when Fed Chief Jay Powell told us it was firing all cylinders, so he needed to slam the brakes by raising interest rates, we had a different view. It's because I do the homework on individual companies. I check in with the retailers, the autos, the chemicals, the papers, the home builders. And more important than all, I think, the transports, especially the rails. See, the rails were telling me a totally different story from Powell's rosy-hued economic forecast. I had assembled all these data points into a mosaic by hand, and it showed me that the economy was slowing because the Fed had gotten too aggressive, not accelerating because the Fed hadn't done enough. Well, look, I'm glad uh, Powell ultimately changed his mind. That was good. But it still feels like his people in the Federal Reserve never wanted to get their hands dirty by listing the actual conference calls of individual companies. Sure, they got those briefing books and white papers, some of the branches, St. Louis, high-quality research from there. Today, we got the beige book. It always has some good nuggets. But it's not as good as what you could assemble for yourself, simply by knowing which companies have their finger on the pulse of the economy. Because they're backed up by cold, hard cash, actual bills of lading, receipts, manifests. What's my homework telling me right now? As I said before, I think we've got a Goldilocks economy, not too hot, not too cold. Hey, maybe that bores you. I don't care. It's not what I'm about. I'm betting that this economy will be allowed to breathe without the Fed hitting us with another chokehold of a rate hike like the last one. The most important of my mosaic, it is the transports. The last big data points we got from this group were incredibly negative. I mean, I got to tell you, they were chilling. You know, I'm talking about, about FedEx, the largest freight forwarder. J.B. Hunt, the second largest trucking company, that was yesterday. Fred Smith, the CEO of FedEx, came on the show and explained that the world was downticking, something that's impacting all business. It was a particularly downbeat conversation after a very subdued conference call. Then on Monday night, J.B. Hunt talked about how commerce continues to cool across this country. It was a really something to hear the majors, this major trucking company tell us that there's no pickup in the economy at all. All their volume numbers were down 6 to 7%, including March, so we're going into April cold. However, you can never really rely on just one or two companies. That's too anecdotal. After all, FedEx has a huge business overseas. It's heavy skewed to China, which we know was experiencing a slowdown until about seven weeks ago. But the company also placed a gigantic bet on Europe. Neither of these really have anything to do with the United States. Of course, they're interaction, but they're not 
one and the same. That's why I was so focused on CSX, the first of the railroads to report. And I was amazed at how strong their business is, which is why their stock, of course, hit an all-time high today of $78, up 4%. Sure, CSX is an east-southeast railroad for the most part, and its business doesn't, of course, stretch overseas. No uh, trains go to one there in but that's why it's such a terrific tell for what's happening in the U.S. economy. It's also a fabulous source of inspiration if you're on the hunt for new stock picks. How do you do it? All right. You turn to a page uh, that all rails have in their slideshow decks. You turn to the revenue highlights. This is the first page you go to of a rail if you want to understand the economy. Okay. This is what tells us about the economy. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's labeled strong price and favorable mix drove revenue gains. Okay. So that's what it would say right above that. First one, chemicals, plus five, commentary. Chemicals increased driven by broad-based growth, partially offset by LPG, fly ash, and sand shipment declines. Okay, what do we have here? Who could match that? And don't worry about the sand declines. That's that's really related to uh, fracking sand not being needed to go from one place to another. The one that works for this is the new Dow chemical. And that's... Well, the one that supports a magnificent 4.79% yield. Plus, Dow's got a robust book of business, as we know from a recent interview with CEO Jim Fitterling on Squawk on the Street. This company's got plenty of chemical plants in CSX territory, so this is the one that really works. You play this chemicals with Dow. Next line item, automotive, plus 2%. CSX tells us that automotive is driven by strength in trucks and SUVs. Of course, GM and Ford come to mind here. I'd rather go with Ford because it's got more SUV and truck exposure than any other automaker. Best of all, Ford sells for just eight times earnings. Stock yields more than 6%. Company has streamlined cut costs mercilessly. I know this is a gutsy call. I'm making it right here, right now. I think you should buy Ford Motor at $9.50. Then there's ag and food. That's up 12%. CSX says that was driven by strength in grain and ethanol. Forget the ethanol. I'll go back to the well here and suggest that Dow DuPont the one that spun off Dow is the way to play it. With its massive crop protection business, genetically modified seed business. Remember, uh, old pioneer, uh, DuPont had corn seeds. That, that's ethanol, so you can make money off of that. Plus, Dow DuPont's already pre-announced a wheat quarter, so it's probably de-risk. So for that one, Dow DuPont. How about forest products? Up 11%, big number. CSX tells us this business was, quote, led by growth in building products and strong export demand, end quote. Tough one. I mean, you could open the file on Weyerhaeuser. Timber, timber company, I'm tired of losing money in warehouse, even with 5% yield. CSX highlights strength in building products. I'd rather just buy a big home builder. Let's buy Lenar, based in Florida. Then the last one I care about, minerals, up 8% on increased construction and paving products. Another tough one. Caterpillar could be a winner here. I like that stock, but it's too global. Martin Marietta, the aggregate supplier. Hey, you know what? That's rock stone. That could work. But wait a second. Bank of America Merle just downgraded the other day. Worrisome. Oh, I got a better way. Jim Fish, CEO of Waste Management, comes on all the time on the show, often commented that his best source of revenue is construction. Waste Management just announced the acquisition of a competitor. Business is good, getting better. That's the one to buy. All right, these other categories that I'm not talking about that much, metals, equipment, fertilizer, coal, intermodal. I can't make as much hay on those. I mean, the metals are doing well because of steel, but there's too much competition. Fertilizers, too commodity. Coal, not on my watch. Intermodal, hey, that's back in the negative world of J.B. Hunt. And, of course, there's some groups that just simply stink. For example, right now, if you're trying to figure out where to get your money to buy these, you know, everyone's selling health care. They're being obliterated by a political panic. The Democratic presidential candidates are all very gung-ho about cracking down on health care costs, many of them basically embracing single-payer. But even though it's very unlikely the industry will get slammed, even if Bernie Sanders wins the nomination, takes that White House and in a landslide and picks up a bunch of Senate seats, I don't think he'll have the, the numbers to make Medicare for all happen. 
Still, there's new political risk that didn't exist a year ago. Portfolio managers don't like it. You know the pain isn't over when big cap companies like Eli Lilly and HCA Healthcare, really good companies, just world every day. Money coming out and going right here. When you see that money pouring out a particular group, it is going to be looking for a home. That home will most likely have economic sensitivity. Who has that? Well, how about the rails and all the things that they move on them? Now, here's the bottom line. I'm doing real shorthand here. I'm just trying to give you a snapshot of the kind of thinking I do. But uh, it's the craft. It's the craft that I practiced for 40 years. There are plenty of ways to skin the cat. This one works for me. And if you're a curious person, it could work for you, too. I want to go to Barbara in my home state of New Jersey. Barbara! Hi, Jim. Barbara. I've been following and investing in Mercado Libre, NASDAQ, MELI. It's Central and South America's leading marketplace, much like Amazon and eBay. It's expensive, volatile, and may eventually face off against Amazon. But who hasn't? Well, I got to tell you, I like Mercado Libre. I was actually one of the original investors way back in when I could invest. I think it's a swell company. It's been a swell. It's had much uh, better growth than eBay. I like eBay, too. I think that's a very good call by, by Barbara from New Jersey. All right, if you're looking for economic sensitivity with your investments, there's a lot of people are bailing out of healthcare. I need you to look to the rail operators and what they move, plus Dalcom, Lenore, Ford, and Waste Management. CSX's latest results tell me there's money to made here. All Man Tonight, it's one of the most watched media platforms on the planet, but one of the most scrutinized stocks in the market. Of course, I'm talking Netflix. Time to add the streaming star to your queue, or did you miss the most important part of the movie and you're still mailing this gets back? Then Dan Loeb may be stirring a pot when it comes to Campbell's soup, but is the proxy battle simmering? Is it still too hot to consider, or is it all over and they're all together in one can? And what's on the horizon for First Horizon now that the rate hikes have been taken off the table? I've got the CEO, so stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. Can Netflix peacefully coexist with all these new streaming services? Will people really pay $15.99 a month for a premium subscription on top of $6.99 for Disney's platform and $11.99 for, say, the YouTube premium? After listening to Netflix's conference call last night, I think the answer is a resounding yes. Why? Because last night I realized how much content I've missed out on since the last call that they gave us three months ago. I mean, what was I thinking missing Triple Frontier, a Ben Affleck-led action movie seen by 52 million households? My wife watched Umbrella Academy and loved it, along with 45 million others. I guess I got to see it now. If Korea loved Kingdom, their period piece with zombies, maybe I will too. I did watch, thank heavens, Fire, the greatest party that never happened. So at least I had something to talk about, and I milked that for weeks on end. 
fire fest. I was king of the anecdotes. I even watched it on the other guy's show. And there you go. Netflix is about giving you something to talk about. Something to talk about when you come in on Monday morning. That's what it is. It's about not feeling like a stooge when everyone else has watched Bird Box. You can't be a stooge. It's all about peer pressure. That's why Reed Hastings is right when he says the real metric is can we keep members happy, end quote. With content like The Irishman, the story of Jimmy Hoffa's murder, by the way, filmed on my street, how can they not keep us happy? If a family of six like we have wants to go to the movies, all of them playing out more than a hundo. But to watch The Irishman the first time uh, uh, Pacino and De Niro have both appeared together in a Scorsese movie at home on my big screen TV with some cheap beverages, maybe even some alcohol, who knows? Well, some candy? Yeah. It costs next to nothing. Netflix is a steal. It's not just a bargain. It's what I call a necessary bargain, an NB. So I don't care what Netflix says about weak domestic or you said about it, or the analyst said about it. I care about the slate. I care about missing out. I care about not seeing the Irishman. As David Faber, my squawk on the street colleague, likes to joke, I have a bunch of houses. And because I'm a masochist of the utmost degree, they all have cable. i got to have cable. I'm a cable guy. I went over my bills just this morning. Listen to this. One of them is $325 a month. Another is $270. I got another $225, and I got two at $187. The horror. The horror. Of course, some of that is high-speed internet, but for the most part, these prices are for a handful of games a year and hundreds of channels that I never watch that I have to go through. I pay them not to have to go through them. I mean, hundreds of them. There are literally hundreds of channels that you don't watch either. I know you, and that's how cable works. I look at these prices, and I immediately start wondering, well, how can I slim this thing down? I look at Netflix, which is raising prices this year by a couple of bucks. I say, wow, what a bargain. A necessary bargain, NB. You can't say that about many cable networks aside, of course, from CBC, which is, of course, essential, essential as it was when it was created 30 years ago today. Happy birthday. Just out of the first 100 channels in my cable box, I have no desire to watch 85 of them. Contrast that with Netflix, where I'm desperate to watch everything. Everything they order. They have to order. Disney? I don't absolutely my kids are younger. I do take ESPN Plus for $4.99. It's another necessary bargain if you want to be knowledgeable enough to win in fantasy football, which I almost always do. My wife loves Hulu, so she can watch her shows when she wants to watch, where she wants. But she also does, she plays that Candy Crush. What the heck is that about? It's like it takes, takes your Medela Blancada and your court. I bet Apple's streaming service will be like that, too. I don't recall anyone ever asking me about anything on YouTube, but I do wish I'd gotten to watch that Game of Thrones I don't know if I should cancel HBO after my wife's finished watching. 15 bucks a month, not much of a savings. In the end, Netflix is charging the $15.99 for what I want, while cable operators can charge $325 for a lot of stuff I don't want. It's $15.99 for movies I want to talk about versus $100 plus candy for something shown to my family in a multiplex that I'll probably never talk about. That's why my two millennial kids only take Netflix and think both movies and cable are ripoffs and do not even know that I have a show. You find a way to give me some sports packages without those 85 channels from 1 to 100 that I don't use, and I'd be a cord cutter too probably after viewing those cable brills. Wow. They're necessary. Uh, I would say cables, a lot of these, these shows are neither necessary nor a bargain. But you know what? The cable, when it comes to cable, I sure do like their stocks. Make a lot of money. Much more man money ahead. It was a food fight with Campbell's, and Dan Loeb opened up a spicy can of a proxy battle. But did he come up with chicken soup for the activist soul? Well, I'm going to give you my take. And I'm talking with regional player First Horizon to see what's ahead for the financials. And after Chevron's big deal for Anadarko, could other oil stocks get on the action? I'm eyeing the merger and acquisition potential in the oil patch. So stay with Kramer.
something you guys often ask me on Twitter. How do you know when you're dealing with a real comeback in a once beaten down stock as opposed to an ephemeral bounce, a flash in the pan that could vanish right under your feet? Well, that's the question we need to ask about. Wow, what an iconic name we're dredging up here. Campbell's Soup, CPB, the old Campbell's Pork and Beans. That's where that symbol comes from. The iconic packaged food company you know from its namesake Campbell's products, along with Pepperidge Farm, Goldfish, Arnott's, V8, Plum Baby Foods, Swanson Bros, and Prego Pasta Sauces, and a host of other brands. Here's a company that's been an absolute mess. We know that the pantry plays brought in, you know, the ones that are bought in the uh, center of the aisle of the supermarket, have been struggling for years as younger consumers favor more natural and organic food over the kind of stuff that you might think uh, maybe you stock a forehead, you know, a fallout shuttle with us, right? French onion soup? I think it's from when the this is Lafayette, maybe. I don't know. And Camp- Campbell's Soup has struggled more than most. It got so bad that last spring, CEO Denise Morrison quit unexpectedly, kind of in a type of hurry that suggests she was pushed out, leaving the company in disarray. The numbers were disappointing, to say the least. And the business seemed rudderless. But then two things happened, not one, but two. First, Campbell's interim management announced a strategic review, effectively telling us they were putting all options on the table. Second, in August, this has become an activist story. One of the most famous or infamous Takeover artists, activists, whatever you want to call them, in the business, Dan Loeb, the head of Third Point, decided to get involved and almost immediately declared war on the board of directors. He doesn't really buy a lot of companies. He does stir up a lot of trouble. Loeb's thesis. He recognized that Campbell's Soup has been an undermanaged mess, which is why right out of the gate, he started pushing for the company to put itself up for sale. Now, these activist targets are inherently more complicated than typical stock. Once a guy like Loeb throws his hat in the ring, the story suddenly has a lot of moving parts. We know Loeb has a plan, but is it a good plan? Can he convince the board of directors to follow that plan? Or will he have to go over their heads and appeal directly to the shareholders? If it comes to a proxy fight in voting, can he actually win? Or does the current leadership have too much entrenched support? In this case, from the family that owns nearly half the company. And then there's the management side of the equation. Will they try to strike a compromise? Will they fight the incursion by working harder to make their shareholders happy? Well, there are a dozen potential permutations for Campbell's Soup, which is why we've been waiting for the smoke to clear before digging deeper into what's going on with this company. But maybe that was a mistake. Because after getting clobbered late last year, Campbell's stock has made a magnificent comeback. It's up almost 19% year-to-date. As the board of directors has reached a compromise with Loeb, they brought in a talented new CEO. And the company's last couple of quarters were actually a lot better than many feared. Plus, the entire packaged food space, well, suddenly, out of nowhere, it's got his wind at its back. I mean, ever since General Mills reported a good quarter, obviously PepsiCo this morning, right? Uh, and by the way, with long-term Treasury yields plummeting, the benchmark 10-year currently at 2.59, the dividends from these pantry plays look a lot more attractive. Even if it's recent run, Campbell sports a 3.55% yield. So they're paying you to wait for a turn. So how did they do it? And is the turn in the stock for real? Okay, first you need to understand where... Campbell's, the stock, but also the company, is coming from. After making a series of small acquisitions in the natural and organic space, the company finally swung for the fences at the end of 2017, snapping up Snyder Lance for $6.1 billion, a dramatic overpay versus anybody else. When you think of Snyder Lance, you think of Snyder's, uh, of Hanover Pretzels, uh, Cape Cod Potato Chips, mm, Pop Secret, remember that was owned by General Mills, and my personal favorite, Nip Cheese. Nip cheese. They're really good for you. They're orange. 
The transaction closed roughly a year ago, and right out of the gate there were problems. Eleven months ago, Campbell's reported an okay quarter with dismal guidance and adding insult to injury, then CEO Denise Mortensen announced her sudden retirement. There was not much about this situation that inspired confidence. So it was a shock when Dan Loeb came out in August and told us that his hedge fund, Third Point, had taken a 5.65% stake in the company. Loeb immediately criticized management, arguing that Campbell's debt fuel takeover spree, remember how much I told you that when they did this one, Snyder's Lance, this was just a killer how much debt they took in. Uh, he said that that acquisition put them in a precarious space. Well, and no kidding, $6.1, uh, $6.1 billion worth of debt for something that really was not that, you know, there's no blue chip. How about that? He pointed out that the stock was basically flat, okay, since 1996. Okay, that's about it. Um, and uh, he really hammered home the lack of leadership, saying the current CEO's vacuum reminds us of Benjamin Franklin's re- resonant insight that if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Touche. However, Campbell's interim CEO had started a strategic review months before, and Loeb argues that the only justifiable outcome would be for the company to sell itself through strategic fire. Now, that is typical activist talk. Hey, listen, we can't fix it if you can't just sell it. But that was always going to be an uphill battle because, you see, Campbell's soup is still in large part a family business. Here's a little history. About 122 years ago, a chemist named John T. Durance invented condensed soup. Yes, he went on to run the company and buy up a controlling interest. This is condensed, okay? You put a lot of tomatoes in this. This guy, Dorrance, figured out how to do it. Today, Dorrance's descendants still own 45% of Campbell's Soup, and most of them don't want to sell. They don't particularly care about capital appreciation either, obviously. They mainly just want the dividends. Okay, what do you think, can you? (laughs) Should we just keep doing it until it falls? Oh, cream of celery, my fave. Now, surely, think there's any celery in this? Show of hands. Thank you. Then Loeb got involved. The company reported again at the end of August, and the results were worrisome. The headline numbers were unremarkable. But Campbell's gross margin, what they make after the cost of goods sold, declined substantially. And once again, management gave awful guidance. Homemade-style chicken noodle. Any chicken in this? Right. Okay. Richard. All right. At the same time, though, the company told us it would be selling Campbell International. That's Arnott's, the Kelson Group, and their manufacturing operations in Asia, as well as Campbell Fresh, which includes Bold House Farms. Do you know when they bought this, they came on the show, and I started using it, and I use their salad dressings constantly. They're all up top, and they're in their refrigerated section. That's why you may, you, maybe you will use Wishbone. Okay. Um, and anyway, they had this uh, garden, uh, fresh gourmet, refrigerated soups. And well, that cushioned the blow from the lousy guidance. At the be- This is good. I've had this. I'm not kidding. At the beginning of October, Dan Loeb officially wants a proxy fight, proposing to replace the entire board of directors at the company's next day. It'll be the entire board. He even recruited a defector from the extended Durance family who's unhappy with the direction of the business. Possible. I don't know. As the dispute went on, the dispute as it got more and more vicious. 
But before it got too heated and everything blew up, Loeb and the board of directors made a deal at the end of November. It was smart. Three days before the annual meeting, Loeb gets two board seats along with input into the new CEO. Suddenly, the story became very different. The activists of the board were working together. On December 20th, Campbell Soup made this brilliant hire. This guy, Mark Klaus, the former CEO of Pinnacle Foods, to run the company. Remember, this is the guy who sold Pinnacle to Conagra. While the stock fell off a cliff in the end of the year, just like everything else, it's come back with a vengeance in 2019. So that's pure self-help. Campbell's has announced those divestures of non-core brands. Also, like they're close to selling its cookie business to Mondelez. Thank you, Mondelez, for delivering those Tate's cookies to us and making us all fat. All right. They're getting $510 million for Bolt House, which they paid, I don't know, a lot more for. And this just could be the tip of the iceberg lettuce that I used this one. Plus, when Campbell's soup reported the latest numbers at the end of February, they actually came in better than expected. Even better, Mark Klaus made it clear that he's making real progress stabilizing the core business, which is true. That said, I think some of the recent strength of this has to do with a sense of optimism about Dan Loeb's involvement now that he and management are cooperating. So what do we do with this stock? Kimberly, they put every lousy, every brand, they just put everything. I remember they bought that. Remember this one that came from that guy who like, well, I can't say what he did to the company. Everything. This. Remember this? Anyway, here's the bottom line. After spending years lost in the wilderness and buying up companies that nobody really wanted, uh, Campbell's Soup is finally turning itself around. But with the stock now trading at 15.7 times next year's earnings estimates, I'm not sure how much upside it has left if Loeb can't find some way to engineer a sale. Deck seems a little stacked against that outcome to begin with. However, if things go south, I think that can make a sale a genuine possibility, especially considering Klaus's successful sale at Pinnacle. And hey, with that dividend, they're basically paying it away for the family to lose its resolve to stay independent. Let me take a question. Let's go to, oh, geez. Let's go to Dennis in California. Dennis. Baba Booyah, Jim. Baba Booyah, right back. I'm a first time caller and I really enjoy watching your show. So, Thank you. I'm thinking about adding to my position in Costco. So, I've done some initial research and I know it's come up from $200 at the beginning of the year to its current price of $245. I also think it has two counts going forward. Once a possibility of a special dividend, which it paid in 2000, May of 2015 and 2017. Right, right. Yeah. And, and the other catalyst, I think, is the increased store traffic caused by higher gas prices as members typically fuel up and then do their Costco run. Okay. Do you think at this, yeah. So do you think at this level that this is a decent risk, risk on trade? Right, look, it's only two points off its high. I think that you obviously can't buy this all at once. This is a stock where you buy some tomorrow and then you buy some on a retreat. Because, you know, you would hate to come in and just buy some and then, boom, market goes down big, you don't have any more firepower. But in terms of the actual conception of the idea, I am all in Costco. Okay, there's still hope for struggling Campbell's soup. While its future is a little unclear, and let's just say uh, its fundamentals, well, let's call them improving, all right? And if activist uh, investor Dan Loeb uh, can uh, convince it to sell itself, stock can go higher. Much more mad money hit. The Fed's rate-raising days are over, but how is it impacting the regional banks like First Horizon? I'm going to talk to the CEO after the earnings to see how the company did. Then, uh, hey, did Chevron's deal with Anadarko add an energy to the oil patch? I'm looking for other players that could be M&A targets. Hey, and of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. We 
we spent a lot of time focusing on the major national banks this earnings season. By the way, those stocks are doing well. But what about the small regional players? Take First Horizon Financial, the Tennessee-based bank, about 300 branches across the southeast. Yesterday morning, this well-run regional reported a strong quarter, delivering inline earnings with higher-than-expected sales. And in response, the stock roared. It vaulted nearly 3%. It tacked on another 1.6% today. But even after this move, First Horizon remains extremely cheap, selling for 10 times this year's earnings, just 1.6 times its tangible book value. What would it take, what would it be worth if the place just closed, okay, if it liquidated? So could this, this stock have much more room to run? Let's check in with Brian Jordan. He's the chairman and CEO of First Horizon. Learn more about the quarter and where his company's head. Mr. Jordan, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you. It's good to be back. All right, Brian, if you were to tell me that there was a bank that had 7% loan growth and over 10% customer deposit growth and only had $5 million in charge-offs, I would tell you that should have about an 18 price earnings multiple, and it should be about 25. Can you please explain to me what's happened in this country that you have your best quarter I've seen? And, you know, people say, ah, it's okay. What is going on here? Yeah, we, we, have a, we did have a very good quarter. We have an interesting environment, I think. At this point, there's still a, a fair amount of question about it, whether this economy is going to die of old age and what that means for the financial institution stocks. And in our case, we, as you know, had an integration last year that took a fair amount of time. But I think what we've proven out over the last half of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019, and I think we'll continue into the second quarter, is we're building momentum and we're seeing great progress on the bank we integrated. The economy is still good. And we're seeing good loan demand. We're seeing good customer deposit activity. We're very excited about how we're positioned. See, what I'm hoping is at a certain point, Brian, you and I will be talking, and we're not going to focus on net interest income or net interest margin and a small amount of basis points. Then we're talking about real growth. And I see when I look at your South Florida properties, when I look at Houston, when I look at the Carolinas, you have genuine growth like a growth company that we would uh, you know, cherish not as, a, as an interest rate play, but actually as a company that's going to put up some maybe double-digit numbers. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's one of the unique features of our organization. Tennessee, where we've been for 155 years, is a great market and great growth dynamics. We expanded with toeholds through Capital Bank into North Carolina, South Carolina. We have an eight-year-old presence or so in Houston, Texas. So we've got a toehold in some very strong growth markets, and we see a tremendous amount of opportunity to win and gain share and to build the business and, as I said earlier, build that momentum. Uh, are there properties for sale? Because yesterday we spoke with uh, Anna Botin. She's terrific. She's cha- uh, chair- chairman of Santander. Uh, I'm sure you saw it. She's, she's great. And she, you know, she wants to expand everywhere. And I'm thinking you're in South Florida. Are there banks that are still for sale in South Florida that you could buy? I think there's there probably are regular way transactions that can get done. I think the market has probably shifted with the announcement of BB&T and SunTrust. So I right. think transactions that get done will probably be larger MOE type transactions. What I've said is, is that we're really focused on execution in 2019 and 2020 and beyond. We're not really in the, in the frame of mind where we're thinking about acquisition at this point. We really want to capitalize on what we've got in terms of foothold in North Carolina, South Carolina, South Florida, and build momentum with that for the short term. Now, a lot of people might be saying, you know, look, he only has $5 million in charge-offs. That's because nobody's getting a loan who's even at all risky. 
I think that there is a new attitude post 2008-9, but you've got a lot of lend, uh, uh, of debtors. I mean, you have a lot of people who want money that would be good credit, but not super. It's not, not like you're not taking any risk, is it? Uh, no, not at all. We have uh, a very nice this, uh, granular portfolio. It is geographically diverse. It is a, a strong portfolio. It's largely a commercial and industrial lending portfolio, so it's largely the commercial entities, some commercial real estate, and then consumer. I think risk is being managed better today in the financial services industry than it was pre-2008, 2009. But there's still a lot of competition for every deal that is out there. The pricing and the structure is still very good for borrowers, and I think is still sound for the financial services industry. But I think we're taking measured and better risk today. I think our portfolio, to the extent that it ever does see a downturn in the economy, uh, I'll be a little pessimistic and say when, I think our portfolio will perform very, very well. We've done a, a tremendous amount of work over 10 years to change our credit profile to this granular and diversified CNI-oriented portfolio, which I think will hold up and perform very, very well throughout a, a changing economy. Okay, so how much of uh, what you said has changed has to do with the 10% of your revenues that you spend on technology, or is that more customer-facing, not necessarily uh, a way to be able to measure risk? Yeah, I think, I think it's a little bit of, of, of both. The technology spend in the industry is probably the fastest-growing thing in the business, and, and I think the cost pressures on the technology side will go up. It'll be a little bit of both. It'll be back office, it'll be tools to help you decision credit, artificial intelligence and tools of that nature, and it will be the customer-facing technologies, things like real-time payments, Venmo, excuse me, Zelle, uh, technologies that allow you to, to provide different tools and features that allow customers to do a better job of banking how they want to bank, when they want to bank, and with a tremendous amount of flexibility. So we will have, a, a, I think, an increasing pressure on the, on the technology spend over time. And you may have noted that, that we spent a fair amount of time talking about how we're trying to pay for that with our existing cost base. So we're reorienting our cost structure to enable us to make those investments. You One last question. Unfortunately, it has to be quick. Uh, next move by the Fed, uh, rate cut or rate hike? If I had to guess, I'd say it's flat for a while and then down. Wow. Okay, we're going to end it right there. Thank you to Brian Jordan. He's First Horizon National Corporation Chairman and CEO. Guys, this is what's called an inexpensive growth stock. Okay? Med Money's back after the break. It is time! It's over the line! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skate Daddy? It's over the lightning round. I want to start with Julia in New York. Julia. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. My question is on Arista Networks. I was wondering, I had it, made a nice profit, sold it. I'm wondering if I should get back into well, it. Well, I, I, you know, I happen to think Jay Shree Yalal is fantastic. I think she's a great manager. You would be buying it at 52-week high. On night when I last year, not really relative, but a high multiple stock, did not deliver the number. This stock is going to come down. I would buy it in two days. I would not buy it right now. Let's go to Skip in California. Skip! Jim, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing Thanks well, Skip. How about you? 
I'm good. I'm good. My question is on NVIDIA. NVIDIA. Oh, I like Jim. NVIDIA. You know, we sold it. The high 200s just bought it back for the uh, club, FractionalistPlus.com, uh, because we just think it's got... We, we love the Mellanox acquisition, so I'm going to say... Ah. Let's go to Marty in New York. Marty! Yes. Go ahead, Marty. Hi. 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 Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. 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 Yes. Marty. Yes. Jim, you're up. Hi. Hi. Uh, Consultation. Doc. I was wondering if it's a buy or should I sell it or hold it? Consolation Brands. Well, this evening, a company that they own half of, literally half of, Canopy Growth is merging with Acreage. I think that they're... Their cannabis business is good, and I think the beer business is okay. Okay, let's go to Chris in Michigan. Chris. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm calling on Bosch Health Company. I bought it this past fall, and healthcare industry stocks are down right now. Right. They're probably going to stay down for a little bit because people are very worried about the Medicare thing. I think you give you got to, look, give it birth because when Obama came in, these stocks, multiples, just got crushed. I want to wait a few more days until people realize that it's not the end of the world for healthcare. I need to go to Michael in Nebraska. Michael. Hey, Jim. I was wondering how AMD is looking. Uh, I like AMD. By the way, they got a new game. Uh, they got uh, new Twitch. Uh, AMD. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's at. Twitch. Don't quote me on that. I'm sorry. But I know that they are. My friend Zeb Fima, who writes with me, was just giving me something very positive about AMD. I like NVIDIA and AMD. I think Lisa Sue's doing a great job. John in California. John. Booyah, Jim. You know, we love you out here in Sacramento. I hey, John. You. How are I you? was just thinking about living out there in the old days when I saw Smart and Final got a bid. What's going on? I don't know. I, I finally, me and the caveman got rid of Gilead. I've been waiting. I went, got it at 96. Sold it at 63. Okay. They got billions of dollars that never trickled down to me. What, what's up with that? Gilead's got a lot of cash, but they haven't done anything with it. That's the problem. I just think that they have like a, they got to like, rattle the cage in that joint. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I'm not going to lie. Feels good to be right. Last Friday, Anadarko Petroleum caught a monster $33 billion takeover bid from Chevron. That's a 37% premium versus where the stock went out the day before. I called it. I bring this deal what happened. And more importantly, I'm betting it will be the first of many major acquisitions in the oil and gas space. When I say I called it, I'm not just talking about the fact that we've owned Anadarko for my charitable trust, but you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Honestly, that's nothing to brag about. Uh, Anadarko's been an agonizing position for us. Because before Chevron came along, the stock had spent months and months and months in that. The house of pain. It's good to bust out of my own personal Shawshank. Still, Three weeks ago, I did make a cold shot. I came out here and explained that this market was in dire need of mergers and acquisitions. We've simply got too many publicly traded companies. Something that's only gotten going to get worse as more and more privately held unicorns like Pinterest tonight keep coming public. At the same time, there are a host of industries that could make a fortune from consolidation. That's the point I was making three weeks ago when I talked about potential takeover targets. Take a look. There are just too many oil companies. I think the mid-sized independent producers need to band together in order to cut costs. Apache and Anadarko make most sense. Hey, that Kramer's guy's got some good ideas, huh? Why did I think Anadarko was such a natural takeover target? I'll let him explain. 
Anadarko, oh, would be a good fit for any of the majors. Anadarko's got holdings all over the world, but it's been dinged by higher production costs, which contributed to the company sickening nearly 40% earnings miss that gutted the stock in early February. So Anadarko was a very attractive takeover target. In fact, when the news broke, at least one analyst, Mizuho's Paul Sackey, joked that, quote, after 30 years of takeover speculation, APC is getting acquired, end quote. Anadarko Pete, always a prize made, never bribed until now. This deal is a bigger game changer than anyone is saying. It really is. And for Chevron, which now becomes the largest producer in the red-hot Permian Basin, an area of Texas that's practically overflowing with oil that's super cheap to get out of the ground, it's a big deal. But more importantly, we've got to ask who's going to be next, because we already know that they bought Anadarko. What's the next company? And yes, I'm extremely confident we're going to see more consolidation in the oil industry. I got this one right, so let's just press the bet. Same factors that made Anadarko such a sweet buy for Chevron. Also mean that Anadarko's rivals would be terrific takeover targets for the big integrated oil companies. I wanted them to simmer down before I came out with this piece. But in fact, I'm betting multiple independent exploration production outfits will end up being gobbled up by either the integrated or simply the larger EMPs. Why is that? For starters, like I mentioned three weeks ago, we still have way too many oil producers. And one deal does not change that. Over the past three years, the price of crude has been stuck between the mid-40s and the mid-70s. Every time we approach the high end of the range, companies start boosting the production and oil prices come right back down. But every time one of these companies gets merged out of existence, the remaining players have an easier time being disciplined about adding new capacity. More importantly, these oil producers, especially the ones in the Permian Basin, are all competing for scarce resources. Specifically, there's a limited supply of pipeline space and a limited supply of labor. Consolidation can help contain those costs. Then there's the most obvious reason we're going to see more takeovers in the oil patch. There were multiple bidders for this one cup for Anadarko. Thanks to some fantastic reporting from my Squawk on the Street teammate, David Faber, we know that Occidental Petroleum, Oxy, also tried to buy Anadarko. In fact, their offer was even higher than Chevron's $65 share bid. Faber says Occidental was willing to pay in the mid-70s per share. These deals both include enormous amounts of stock, and it seems like Anadarko would rather have Chevron shares than Oxy's. Quizzical not to take the apparently highest bid, but maybe they know something I don't. We do know that Occidental wants to make a deal and came within inches of getting Anadarko. They have the firepower all lined up, and I bet they're not the only one who's got the firepower. Once the Anadarko acquisition closes, Chevron will become nearly as large as ExxonMobil and Shell in terms of production, vast Permian exposure. I don't think Exxon wants to cede the Permian crowd to them without a fight. They have kind of, well, Oxy has claims they have the Permian crowd, Exxon can, but all these companies are huge here. And this is far and away the largest oil and gas formation Ever in the U.S. And so much of that stuff is so easy to get out of the ground. It's got pipes and everything. If that sun can bulk up its Permian business by buying one of these independents, I think that would make a ton of sense. So which of these independent producers would make the most obvious targets? Okay, I'm going to give them to you. I want you to write them down. Uh, last one's probably best, but all these are probably going to happen. The first is Apache. Okay. Then there's Concho, Parsley, Little Guy and Pioneer Natural Resources. Let's start with Apache. Okay, this has a little bit disappointing. $14 billion exploration production cut play used to be much higher. Wells in the United States, Egypt, don't worry, good place, and in the North Sea off the coast of Britain. Most importantly, Apache's got a ton of exposure to the Permian Basin. However, the company's been an inconsistent producer. A couple years ago, we learned about a major new discovery, Alpine High, but so far it has not lived up to its expectations. The hype was terrible, in part because the property turned out to be less oily and more gassy than expected. And oil is a lot more valuable than gas. Hey, listen, we flare a lot of gas. There's no market for the darn stuff. Still, Apache stock has come down to ridiculously low levels. This was a $101 stock five years ago. It bottomed at 25 in Christmas. While Apache's bounced is 36 and change today, I think it's got more upside. 
Uh, you got to own natural, like natural gas, though, and they do have a debt-laden balance sheet. Put all together, and I think Apache is exactly the kind of producer that might be worth more to an Exxon than it is on its own. Next up, Concho. Thanks to a series of acquisitions and small-scale investors, Concho has transformed itself into a nice, easy-to-understand, well-run, pure play on the Permian Basin. If I were running Occidental or Exxon, I'd be salivating over this one with just one uh, hitch, though. My understanding is that Concho is not interested in selling. They've been working hard to create a straightforward, best-of-breed company. And with this cleaner structure, Concho is in a terrific position to start coining money. Plus, who knows? For the right price, maybe they'll agree to be acquired. Then there's Parsley Energy. This is a small. It's only $6.6 billion independent exploration production play. Parsley has holdings, good holdings, across two of the best sub-areas of the Permian. I think the company's poised to transition from a period of heavy investment to a period of tremendous profits. Plus, it would be a bite-sized takeover target. The stock's absurdly cheap. It's at nine times next year's earnings. The final Permian play is the best. Uh, you're thinking it's Simrex. You've been thinking wrong. Anyway, the best one, Pioneer Natural. If Pioneer were to be bought, it would be a major, major deal perhaps even more significant than Anadarko, okay, depending on the size of the premium. I think this is another one that's right in the crosshairs and is definitely, I think, the best of these four companies. Now, Pioneer's founding CEO, Scott Sheffield, he stepped down in 2016, handing the reins to Tim Dove, the chosen successor. But Dove announced his retirement in February after the company reported a hideous quarter. In fact, I thought it was abrupt and shocking. Who's replacing him? None other than the 65-year-old Sheffield, who came out of retirement to turn things around. I wouldn't be surprised if he simply wants to put the finishing touches on Pioneer before putting the whole business up for sale. And I'm not alone there. There's a reason Pioneer's stock jumped 11% on Friday when the Anadarko news broke. Personally, I love this company. Sheffield made some brilliant acquisitions when oil crater. He's such a smart guy, fantastic negotiator. He'll get the highest price imaginable if he does decide to sell. I like that. Bottom line, Anadarko was the first big oil deal this year, but I bet it won't be the last. That's why I like Apache. I like Concho, Parsley, and especially Pioneer Nat, because this industry still needs much more consolidation. And even if they don't, I think Pioneer Sheffield will find a way to make money for you. Stick with Kramer. People always ask me, what's your favorite cannabis stock? It's Canopy. They've got the money and they've got the scale. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.